Strolling hand in hand down a lover's lane in New Brunswick, New Jersey, a young married man and his teenage mistress stumbled upon a gruesome scene. Lover's lanes weren't just for young people looking to escape the watchful eyes of their parents, but it would seem that this particular town had a handful of married folks who were looking to escape the watchful eyes of their spouses as well. Lying underneath the crab apple tree was a man and a woman, both dead. The man had been shot once in the head, laying in a dark suit with his hand outstretched and a Panama hat covering his face. The woman, his mistress, had been shot in the head three times and had her throat so viciously cut that it was nearly severed from her body. She was wearing a polka dotted dress and black stockings with her scarf tied delicately around her neck where it had been cut. Spread between them was a myriad of love letters written from the deceased mistress, Mrs. Eleanor Reinhardt Mills, to her deceased lover, Episcopal Reverend Edward Wheeler Hall. If there was any question as to who he was, his calling card lay propped up against his foot. I'm your host, Catherine, and this is Murder and Mediumship. I want to start by saying that my throat is not quite up to par so far. I had a horrible head cold the last week or so, and I'm hoping that we make it through this recording without me sounding like a frog smoking a pack of cigarettes by the end of it. But in other news, happy November. 2023 is approaching so quickly. And as it does, it occurred to me that toward the end of February, my calendar will be even more limited than it is now. So if you're looking to to book a private one-on-one reading, now is the time to do it. There's a new appointment type up on my site as well, a one-on-one coaching session for a specific career guidance, especially for a spiritual entrepreneur, but not necessarily exclusive to. I would also recommend this type of session for someone who's looking to grow their intuition in a more one-on-one type of way, but doesn't feel that they necessarily need months of coaching or isn't sure if they'd like to invest their time in that. Even for coaching clients who have been here in the past and are looking for just a quick coaching check-in. I do still offer one-on-one mentorship and coaching, and I have two spots open right now. But after January 1st, I will not be accepting new clients in that way for a quite a while while I get myself situated with my newest endeavors in February, which include exploring new ways to help all of you live your own personal best lives with the most healing possible. Anyway, if you've been listening to the show for a while, or maybe this is your first time, stop on by Spotify and punch those five stars. And if you're feeling generous, I would so appreciate a review and five stars on iTunes. As the more stars and reviews the show has, the more people whose ears it will reach. The show is so close to 100,000 downloads, and I'd love to see if we hit 150 reviews on iTunes or 100,000 downloads first. So let the race begin. And before anyone hits skip on their phone, let's find out how an Episcopal reverend and his choir girl wound up murdered under a crab tree on a lover's lane of all places. On September 16th, 1922, the people of New Brunswick and Somerset confirmed what they had already suspected for some time. The priest of St. John's Episcopal Church, Mr. Hall, was having an affair with his choir girl, Mrs. Mills. If you think that this is just about as salacious as it could possibly get, you'd be quite wrong. See, Mr. Hall was married to Frances Noel Stevens Hall, and she was a wealthy woman. 
Mrs. Hall and her brothers came from a family that had accrued a substantial fortune in the wallpaper industry and also had ties to Johnson and Johnson. When I say that she had an incredible amount of wealth, I'm not exaggerating. Mrs. Hall and her brothers were worth about $2 million in 1922, which translates to over $32 million today. The two met when Edward Hall was assigned to St. John's Parish. At the time, Francis Stevens was a Sunday school teacher with the church. When the two married, Hall was already 31 years old and Francis Stevens was 37. Most speculated that he had married her for money and status, but he didn't seem to really shy away from that accusation. They moved into her three-story mansion where she had grown up with her two brothers. The two had no children of their own, but her older brother, Willie, lived with them. He was said to be a little bit slow developmentally and was often found hanging around children or much younger people as he could connect with them more easily. Once they married, rumor has it that Frances had put her husband in charge of Willie's weekly allowance, something she had previously taken care of as Willie wasn't really able to care for himself as far as food and money were concerned. Willie wasn't a fan of Ed as Ed gave him only $25 per week when Willie wanted significantly more. Mrs. Mills, the reverend's mistress, she was a wife to Parish Sexton, otherwise known as the custodian, James Mills. The two women were very different, both in socioeconomic status and apparently in personality as well. And in looks, if you do a little bit of Google searching. Mrs. Mills had grown up in the area and sang as a choir soprano at St. John's from the time she was 14 years old. She met her husband, James, at the church when she was only about 15, and they married and had two children together. I believe a boy and a girl, though I do know one girl, Charlotte, for sure. The family lived five blocks away from the monstrosity of a home that the, that the reverend and his wife lived in. The Mills family, however, lived in a rundown frame house and lived off of a meager income. According to Dr. Mary Hartman, the dean of Douglas College of Rutgers University and the author of the Hall Mills murder case, the most fascinating unsolved homicide in America, the affair seemed to have gone on for a few years as by the end of 1919, Mr. Hall was calling on Mrs. Mills regularly and she was going to the church almost daily herself. Not only that, but it seemed that both of the spouses knew about the affair between their loved ones, but neither would openly admit it. Within about two weeks time, Mrs. Hall had hired her own attorney to investigate her husband's death as there were still no leads. And since the crime had taken place just over the border from Somerset County into Middlesex County, the prosecutors were kind of at war over whose case it even was and were failing miserably at working together and getting anyone arrested, let alone to trial. You guys, if you're even the slightest bit bored, Google some of the headlines from this case because there were so many rabbit holes to go down and I could never have gone down all of them for an episode without researching for months and months and months. So once the governor pushed these prosecutors to work together, they brought Willie Stevens in, Mrs. Hall's brother, for questioning. Meanwhile, reporters were flooding the tiny area to catch just a bit of the salacious news. Newspapers were filling with sensationalized, air quotes, news around the case. Vendors were selling balloons at soft drinks and snacks at the site of the murders, and others were taking pieces of the bark off of the tree the couple was found slain under. James Mills, Mrs. Mills' husband, even sold a diary of Mr. Hall's to a New York newspaper that his wife had been in possession of. I mean, 1920s soap opera style. 
To be fair, he had also told reporters that he had believed that Mr. Hall was his best friend. I probably would have sold the diary too. I'm just saying. Some say that James Mills was a little slow himself, but regardless, befriending the woman's husband that you're sleeping with, not very godlike for a reverend. I'm just saying. Typically, the first person investigated in a crime like this would be the significant other. And in this case, maybe due to her being a woman and maybe due to her being an affluent woman or both, Mrs. Hall was questioned only once and barely at that, two days after the bodies were found, and she hadn't been returned to since. Her alibi was that she had been home with Willie all night, though no house employees could confirm that claim. After a night watchman told authorities that he'd seen her re-entering her home around 2.30 the morning of the 15th, she suddenly recalled that she had been out looking for her husband who had not returned home from the day before. Not only that, but while he was missing, between the time he went missing and when he was found, she told the church organist that Mr. Hall wouldn't be in for choir practice because he was out of town. So she was already covering for his disappearance, but she had no idea where he was. James Mills had been doing woodwork and fortunately for him had been heard by neighbors and passersby. He was also seen within an hour of the killings, which meant that he couldn't possibly have committed the crime. So let's go back to the couple who had found the bodies of Mr. Hall and Mrs. Mills, Pearl Bomber, a 15-year-old factory worker and her on-again, off-again boyfriend, 22-year-old Raymond Schneider, were questioned about the crime too. Schneider told authorities that he had been out the night the couple had been murdered. Two nights prior on the 14th, he and a buddy, Clifford Hayes, had also, who had also dated Pearl, you know, a small town, had grown suspicious of Pearl's father and thought that he was committing incest with her. So in order to protect Pearl, the two of them had planned to, quote, get rid of her father that evening and had supposedly followed Pearl and her father down Lover's Lane. At some point, the two of them must have parted ways because according to Schneider, Hayes killed Hall and Mills, thinking that Hall was Pearl's father. But as for why Mills had been so violently murdered, especially if he was thinking she was Pearl and he was there to protect her, that part didn't add up and neither did the love letters strewn about that were clearly written to Edward Hall and signed by his lover, Eleanor Mills. Regardless, authorities arrested and charged Hayes on October 9th, 1922. He didn't quite fit their narrative the way that they needed him to, but wasn't it easier to arrest a poor man with no socioeconomic standing and no political pull whatsoever than it would have been to arrest, say, Frances Hall and her brothers, Frances Hall, whose story kept changing? The people of Middlesex County were infuriated, though. They vehemently protested the arrest of Clifford Hayes and even went so far as to create a justice fund for his defense. And it wasn't until Schneider, a known liar, admitted to authorities that he had been lying, that Hayes was released. While Hayes was locked up, another witness came forward, Jane Gibson, a pig farmer whose farm boundary line lies directly across from where Hall and Mills had been found dead. Couldn't watch Hayes be taken down for something she knew he hadn't done as she had claimed to have witnessed the crime herself. On the evening of the 14th, Gibson, who came to be known as the pig lady, had been stalking a suspected corn thief, get it, stalking a corn thief, when she instead stumbled upon a murder scene. Not funny, I apologize. She found Mrs. Hall, her brother Willie Stevens, and a few others involved in an argument of sorts near the crabapple tree. A little bit later, she heard gunshots go off. 
In her quick effort to get further away from the unfolding scene, she lost a moccasin and eventually went riding back on her donkey to go find it. While riding back, she saw Mrs. Hall kneeling and weeping over Mr. Hall's lifeless body. Gibson had trouble getting her story exactly straight with a few details that varied. And even her own mother accused her of being a liar. But I have to say, when you're a poor farmer and you're standing up against money in a small town, maybe she wasn't really lying. Maybe she was because in her own diary, she had written that she heard four gunshots, never wrote more about what she had seen. And the story about the donkey gets more and more elaborate every time she tells it. Her story definitely faltered here and there, but ultimately the bones of it did remain fairly consistent. Needless to say, this investigation was an absolute mess. And roughly a month into it, the state attorney general's office was ordered to take it over. In November of 1922, Mrs. Hall, her two brothers, Willie and Henry, and their cousin were brought before a grand jury. Over 60 witness testimonies were heard over a period of five days. And at the end of it all, Somerset County had chosen not to indict Mrs. Hall, her brothers, or their cousin, and the charges were dropped. Is that all, though? Check the progress bar of this episode. No, it only gets better. Charlotte Mills, the daughter of Eleanor Mills, was incredibly dissatisfied with the failure to try Mrs. Hall and her brothers for the murder of her mother. I mean, rightfully so. It just so happened that she wasn't the only one displeased with the alleged cover-ups and bribery that had gone on in 1922. In 1926, the ex-husband of the Hall family's former maid, Louise, Louise Geist, filed for an annulment of their marriage after finding out that she had withheld information from law enforcement pertaining to the double murder of Mr. Hall and Mrs. Mills in 1922. What? Also, I'm beginning to think Pig Lady and Mr. Geist are the only two in this town with a conscience. But according to Mr. Geist, Louise knew that Mr. Hall and Mrs. Mills were planning to run off together. And she had told Mrs. Hall of their plan and was involved in the murder plot. Oh, and small details. Mrs. Hall paid her $5,000 for her silence as well as for her involvement. Doesn't money talk? When Mr. Geist came forward in 1926, the new Somerset prosecutor had Francis Hall, Willie, and Henry Stevens, and their cousin all arrested in the middle of the night. So much for lavish treatment with this prosecutor. However, Francis was set free on bail as soon as Governor Moore put Special Prosecutor State Senator Alexander Simpson on the case. The interest of reopening the case didn't end with locals, though. New York City newspaper otherwise known as tabloid, the Daily Mirror, the editor had assigned a top reporter to investigate the crime and see if he could gather enough, quote, evidence to persuade New Jersey's governor to reopen the case. I'm not sure if they really cared so much about the case or the press that it would garner. I mean, stuff like this probably definitely sells newspapers. Probably definitely. If you recall, four years ago, prosecution was ready to pin the murders on Clifford Hayes despite the fact that it made literally no sense whatsoever. Fast forward four years and vast amounts of evidence had seemingly vanished. We're talking autopsy reports, grand jury testimony, signed affidavits by accident, or was this the work of a Somerset prosecutor who was covering for the Hall family? If you're thinking that there's no way that kind of corruption could actually take place, the old prosecutor's brother was found to be in possession of grand jury transcripts and was actively trying to sell them to a newspaper anonymously. This time, all four were indicted. 
The three siblings were tried together and their cousin Henry Carpenter was set to be tried separately as his involvement was far less substantial than the previous three. The trial started on November 3rd, 1926 and lasted one month. Hundreds of journalists came to the small town through the summer and fall, booking up hotels, renting houses, and creating a lot of business for Prohibition-era purveyors of alcohol, as stated by the New York Times. This trial was huge. They had 28 telegraph switchboard operators and numerous mimeograph machines. The mimeograph came before the copy machine, allowing news releases about the trial to be mass-produced quickly, sight unseen. Four stenographers were present at the trial to ensure that everything was recorded accurately. And when I say hundreds of reporters showed up, there were no less than 130 reporters watching from three rows of folding chairs with even more standing wherever they could. The prosecution cited Willie's thumbprint being on Mr. Hall's calling card that was propped up on his foot, although the defense called it a partial print and unverifiable. They also had loads of testimony about Mrs. Hall using her hired air quote private detectives to bribe key witnesses, witnesses like Ralph Gorsling, a St. John's vestryman, and interestingly enough, an assistant manager for a company owned by the Johnson family of which Mrs. Francis Hall had ties to. He himself had begrudgingly admitted to being on lover's lane that evening of the murders with his own mistress another woman from St. John's Parish, and they had heard the shots around 10 and 15 p.m. What is with this church? He denied this in 1922, likely because he'd been bribed, and two, he'd have to admit to being unfaithful to his wife. Gorsling later ran into Henry Stevens, one of Francis Hall's brothers, and was supposedly taken to a lodge room and threatened, made to promise not to tell anyone. Gorsling may not have been simply involved in the church, but others swore that he was a spy for Mrs. Hall. He and Miss Minnie Clark, whether or not these two were Mr. and Mrs. Smith on Lover's Lane, I don't know, but she was another Sunday school teacher at St. John's. As far as Henry's involvement goes, he had told authorities that he was nowhere near New Brunswick on the night of the murders, but was in fact back home in Lavalette, New Jersey, just about an hour or so away from New Brunswick. However, He had been seen by others the day after the murders in New Brunswick, caught in a lie. My favorite witness, the hearse driver for Mr. Hall on the day of his funeral, claimed to have noticed long, fresh scratches on Mrs. Hall's face, despite her heavy black veils. The first autopsy failed to report a gruesome fact about the state of Mrs. Mill's body, possibly because it was the official copy was lost, possibly because they failed to report it. And tap that fast forward 15 seconds if you'd like to, but her tongue and vocal cords had been cut out. How was this not listed? And again, maybe it was, but the official autopsy report had been lost after all. You would think they had notes or something though. I don't know. I digress. When you compared the witness testimony of lower class citizens to the notoriety of the Hall Stevens family in town, the state's case was weakened. No one would take the word of even a dozen common folk over the affluent Mrs. Hall and her well-to-do brothers. Remember Pig Lady? She was deathly ill and the judges had her wheeled into the courtroom to testify from a hospital bed and even still was not taken seriously. She fainted after her testimony. She was so weak and sick. All three of them were acquitted and the charges against their cousin were dropped before he was taken to trial. This was a media circus. 
However, we later find out that in 1922, a minister friend of Mr. Hall's, Paul Hamborski, had attended a conference with Mr. Hall. During that time, Edward Hall told Hamborski that he feared Francis, that she had become increasingly cold with him. I can't imagine why. <laughs> and that she knew of the affair. Not only that, but according to Mr. Hamborski, Edward had been threatened by a family member of his wife's if he didn't stop seeing Mrs. Mills. However, Edward confessed to Hamborski that he had no intention of ending the affair, but actually quite the opposite. They planned to run away together, and Hamborski disappeared the night before the trial in 1926. Interesting. It would seem as if it should all end there. Most of the big players are deceased by now, and while we all think that we know who killed Edward Hall and Eleanor Mills, there's no getting a conviction anymore. But 47 years later, in 1969, a man by the name of Julius Boylug spoke to a New York City radio station about what he had known September of 1922 about the double homicide. Back then, Boylug was about 20 years old and friends with Willie Stevens, who was 50 at the time of the murders. Boylug told the radio station that Willie was always known to be a little bit off and known to others as Nazi Willie. After the murders, Willie approached Boleg and handed him two white envelopes while his sister Frances waited in the vehicle. Willie asked him to take the envelopes filled with $6,000 total to two hoodlums who Boleg identified as Gutman, Ike Gutman, and Freddy. Ike was a known gangster in the area and a career criminal who was later shot to death in 1934, gangland style by the mafia. Boleg was threatened by the hoodlums to keep his mouth shut. And out of fear, he did. Nothing else is known about Freddy to this day, other than his first name was Freddy, if that was even his first name. When Bullock came forward with his story in 1969, he agreed to take a lie detector test and subsequently took and passed two of them. He was also interviewed by psychiatrist Dr. John Spradley, who determined that Bullock was of sound mind and appeared to be telling the truth. So what if what he says is true? And it would seem that it is. Why come forward when he did? Bolig became gravely ill in 1969 and desperately wanted to get this information off of his chest. He actually ended up recovering from his illness, though, but I imagine it was still quite a load to take off. He told the radio station that he didn't speak up sooner because he truly was afraid for his own life and well-being if told. I mean, when you think about it, Mrs. Hall was allegedly paying people off left and right. And the state of Mrs. Mills's body, I would have been afraid to speak up as well. So who actually killed them? Was it her and her brothers? Did they hire the hoodlums and merely watch? Were they, were they even there? My hunch says that the hoodlums did the killing while Mrs. Hall and her brothers watched. They laid the business card out in the love letters, but the dirty work was the hired hands. What do you think? Comment on this episode's post on Instagram and let me know what you think about who did it or what any of their involvement was. The story actually does end here. No more twists and turns, at least for now. Hopefully, Bolig's information brought even a little bit of closure to Charlotte Mills and her sibling, but I'm not sure that anything short of a conviction could do that. And if you're still listening, head on over to iTunes and punch those stars and leave some kind words. As always, thank you for listening.